Our scripture reading today is taken from the New International Version. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I get teased about these big words, so I'll try to define them carefully today. We're talking about church. Why church? What the church does? What the church can do that nothing else can do? Why that's important? And hopefully this series informs each of us a little bit on why it is that we put so much importance in this event, this gathering. We give of our resources in terms of our tithes and our offerings. At least I hope we're giving of our resources. We give of our time. That is to say, we're here Sabbath morning. Uh, Some of us more on time than others. Um, Some of us for Sabbath school and church. Some just church. Sometimes we, uh, we come uh, a lot of Sabbaths. Sometimes it seems like we're gone a lot of Sabbaths. That's okay. I'm not here to beat anybody up. We just give our time, though. And many of you spend hours outside of this place planning and executing programs and services. You donate your skills, your organizational abilities, your time, your resources in terms of managing all that goes on in the church because truly... Church is this wonderful gathering of people that gets the work of God accomplished in its order and its organization. I want to hastily give you this commercial. I really believe that when the scriptures refer to, when Jesus says, I have sheep who are not of this fold, I not only think that that opens up the door for uh, salvation happening in um, other denominational settings, I think it happens in other religious settings as well. And I think that the thing that 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 particular concept does for us is removes the burden of having to be the ones. Instead, it gives us the opportunity to journey and to focus on the one who is the one. And what that does for us is very freeing and very powerful. And so I would maintain there's an invisible body of Christ that is a sort of spiritual network, if you will, of true believers who engage the truest form and meaning of religion. And as part of that, I think you just need to reference Matthew 25, if you're curious about what that truest essence might be. The truest essence is never sacrifice or incense. It is never vestments or formalism. It is never uh, even... Oh, those of you who are musicians, close your ears because heresy is a coming. It's not even music. That's an important part of worship, especially if you're musical, if you love music. But I'll tell you what, the essence of true religion is ethical. I was hungry and you fed me, thirsty and you gave me to drink, naked and you clothed me, sick and you took care of me, in prison and you visited me. I was the face of need around you and you responded in kindness, in generosity, and in love. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Are we clear on that? That's the real essence of true religion right there. So, given the importance of that, what I talk about is also important, but not as important as that, if we can be sort of, uh, if we can prioritize. Thoroughly confused? Oh, good. 
I didn't want to have to do that all over again. Text this morning was, iron sharpens iron. Now, I don't know how true that really is in the practical sense. When I've seen people sharpen iron, they've used something else. Any of you know what it is? A rock, a stone of some kind. What kind of stone usually? A whetstone. And they rub it along the edge to give the iron the sharpest, finest edge possible. And there are even various techniques for using whetstones that are more effective than others to really sharpen iron. I think what's happening in this text, and I may be just putting something on it, so don't take this as gospel, but I think what it's talking about is that when people sword play, they strengthen one another's skills. Does that, does that make sense to you, iron sharpening iron? In other words, it's not just the metal clashing against each other that makes it sharper. It's the instrument itself. It's the human who's using that, that weapon in the course of practice, in the course of clanging it against somebody else actually sharpens their skills. Does that, does that ring true for you in your experience? Oh, come on. You don't have to be a theologian. Is that your experience? Yes. Good. When we rehearse, when we practice, when we work at a skill, we get better at it. One of the skills that church employs is the skill of understanding or coming to or developing truth. Now, I'm not talking about truth with a capital T. Only God is the embodiment of truth with a capital T. And we don't have him. We don't possess him. We don't own him. We see him now darkly through a glass. Is that fair to scripture? Who should be so arrogant? I have preached on having the mind of Christ. That's biblical. I've talked about the outrage of... um, John 15, 16, and 17, particularly John 17, where Jesus is in the Father and we are in him, and there's this sort of unity that's produced in this incredible mystery in which we partake in the divine life. And I I could no more explain it to you than, well, I, I just, I have no idea how that mystery really works, except that Jesus describes it in this very long prayer that he prays. And he's seeking for this. So our topic today is the church, orthodoxy, heterodoxy, and heresy. Now, orthodoxy is really, in its simplest terms, consensus of belief. And the sort of uh, confirmation of that creedally. That is to say, you state the beliefs in a formula of words that makes sense to everybody concerned or is agreeable to everybody concerned. Do you understand that definition? So orthodoxy would be, let me give a real simple illustration. I understand this fabric to be black. Does anybody agree with me? I'm going to formulate this this way. The fabric is the color of black. Are those words acceptable to you? Then an orthodox formulation of this might be the color of this is black. The color of this fabric is black. That may be the words which we all agree represent our understanding of what this is. So that would be an orthodox statement or word about what it is that we understand or see there. Now, some of you might nuance it. No, I see something with black, but lots of white dots that might be lint. I think the lint's important here. 
Some of you might nuance it and say, well, the sun has sort of tainted it a little bit through time and there's almost a, a, a deep purplish sheen to it. You might want to nuance it that way. And that's what sort of happens with orthodoxy. We, we chip away sometimes at it because it's very difficult in words to con- come to transcendent con- concepts. That is to say, ideas that go beyond ourselves, that go beyond our mundane reality. Heterodoxy and heresy share very similar definitions. Heterodoxy, same uh, beginning a prefix, hetero, refers to other or different, divergent. So a heterosexual is somebody who's attracted to an opposite. Make sense? Heter- uh, homogeneous milk, for example, is milk in which the fat and the regular milk have been forced through high-powered jets together and cleaved together as one substance now. It's no longer divided between fat and skim milk. Make sense? So homogeneous belief would be orthodoxy. Heterogeneous belief would be heterodoxy. Thoroughly confused again? Okay, you got that. I don't have a PowerPoint. That might help next time, huh? Heresy is also a divergent belief from the orthodox position. It's something that says, no, this really looks green to me. And we would all say, no, I don't think so. And that particular view that this is green would be held as a heresy, perhaps. Now, the interesting thing is that heresy, as a word, has a much more powerful and much more negative connotation than heterodoxy. Would you agree? Of course, most of you probably aren't real familiar with the word heterodoxy. You are familiar with the word heresy. So usually it's orthodoxy or heresy, but I would like to nuance those two words just a a little bit if you'll let me. The nuance would be this. Heterodoxy might be more akin to pluralistic views. That is to say, heterodoxy might look more like a minor divergence in opinion. For example, the person who says, no, it's black, but it has lint, it has white stuff on it, might be a heterodox point of view rather than heretical point of view, if you'll allow me to kind of nuance it that way for today's purposes. Or, no, the sun has faded it and it sort of has a purplish look to it. Um, That might be a heterodoxy rather than a heresy. Uh, Even though our consensus statement says this appears to be the color black. Are we okay with definitions so far? Wow, okay, the hard part's out of the way then. We get to forge ahead in Scripture. <laughs> Let's just spend a minute with that text in Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. Before we move on and lose track of that. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. By interacting, we develop and mold one another in character and in skill. And in this particular case, as we share in the world of experience and in the world of ideas, we form together a sort of orthodoxy. Now, by definition, this cannot happen as a solo venture. 
Me flailing a sword in midair accomplishes nothing. Rubbing iron against my hand and not a stone will accomplish slicing my hand if it's at all sharp. It will not sharpen the iron. No skills are sharpened in this sort of individualistic venture. And so implicit in the idea of orthodoxy is the notion of body. I'm going to take a few minutes just to give a quick history lesson or to remind you or refresh you in history. And if I should get some detail wrong, don't hesitate to share with me uh, your understanding of, of a correct version of this. I make no pretense at being a great historian. But as you'll see as we go through uh, our texts today and as we look at some early church things, there has never been a group of body where there wasn't disagreement. Does that make sense? The question is what happens in resolving disagreement and what happens with the body as it proceeds through these things. And it's an important aspect of church life and participation in church life. Historically, you have the apostles. We'll start there in the scriptures and, and, and spend some time with this. The apostles were not called apostles until what? I can't hear you. What were they commonly called before? Disciples. Why were the disciples called disciples? They were followers of a living Jesus, right? What happened to the living Jesus? He was crucified, wasn't he? Did he live again? He did, but he also ascended to his father and sits at the right hand of God. Isn't that what we read? So with Jesus now having gone to heaven and the promise of a spirit to be sent having been made and Pentecost having occurred, the disciples are organizing now and it's obvious to them that there's, there's not going to be a mass conversion of the Jewish nation. There isn't going to be a reform that takes In fact, there's going to have to be a distancing, a separation, if you will, and a church is going to be formed as opposed to the Jewish religion or a new uh, sect within the Jewish religion. You see, I don't really believe Jesus came to form a church. I think it was the outcropping of what happened when people's hearts were hard and they wouldn't receive him. He came as the Messiah to the Jews. He came to redeem a people and they wouldn't hear it and they wouldn't have him. At least many of them wouldn't. So now we have disciples who become commissioned as apostles. I believe Thaddeus is the replacement for Judas. I could have that wrong. Huh? Matthias, thank you. Oh, I I appreciate that very much. Matthias is the replacement for Judas. And they go on as 12 now again. And interestingly, they aren't just 12 because there is one who has been added to them who is not of the 12, but who has seen Christ. He describes himself as one abnormally born among the apostles. Who is that? Paul, the apostle Paul. His journey is very different. He hasn't been a disciple. And in fact, as a member of the Sanhedrin and a Pharisee, he has been one who has persecuted 
uh, Jesus and his followers, particularly post-resurrection and ascension. And he has persecuted them and come to a place where he has met Jesus on the Damascus Road, been three days blind, been healed, and taken years away to kind of rethink things, if you will, to get his story straight. And he comes back and interacts with the three emergent top apostles. Can you name them? Peter, excellent. James, right. And John. They are the the three preeminent uh, apostles at this point. And Peter and James particularly are influential in the early Jerusalem church. Peter will be the one who will have been the recipient of the the, the vision of the animals being lowered in the basket, which he interprets to mean that the Gentiles are not unclean to God, but are accepted by God. And the beginning of the opening of the minds of the church in Jerusalem to the possibility of Jewish converts begins to happen. Meanwhile, Paul, who's not really in with the in-group in Jerusalem, has been sharing the gospel of Christ with the Gentiles already and is beginning to have great success. They are receiving the Holy Spirit. They are converting to Christianity. They are being baptized. They are evidencing a new walk in their lives, what we would call conversion. And the world is very, it's spinning very fast in this first century. Very fast. As you remember, uh, Rome will march on Jerusalem around 70 AD, utterly destroy it. Uh, The Jews will again be scattered from this place and, and killed there will be a series of persecutions right up until the conversion of Constantine in 325, roughly, 323 A.D. And there will be a separation made increasingly from the first century onward between Christians and Jews. Have you heard all that before? I probably have. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 15. Bear with me, I'm going to read quite a bit in Acts 15 this morning. Starting in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, quote, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Now, Let's just pause in the story right there because there are several interesting things going on. The first thing that's happening is that, and it still happens today, the first thing that happens is somebody comes to an idea that they think must be accepted by the group. They have an opinion. 
And so some were coming into the church and saying, unless you become circumcised and keep the laws of Moses, you can't be saved. This was the earliest test of what would later become the gospel. This is the earliest test. The initial question the church faces is what do we do in the wake of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, first of all? But the secondary question is, who gets to belong? Who is, who, who is God calling in all of this? And the Jews who were already circumcised, who already had God through the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets, and who had lived this salvation history that we read of in Scripture, this, this movement of God through the Old Testament, through, through time and space, and a people, they felt very strongly that kosher needed to be kept, that circumcision was an important part of the deal, and so forth. And so this group who became known as Judaizers strongly believed that you couldn't receive Christ without these things. Now Paul and Silas, who've already witnessed the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit apart from circumcision and apart from adherence to the standards of kosher, disagree. They understand Christ in a way that's different, in a way that's freeing from these regulations, from this previous vehicle, if you will. They disagree. They have arguments. Iron sharpens iron. They agree that for the sake of the body, they will counsel with the main church, the headquarters, if you will, in Jerusalem, that the apostles will look at the issue and the elders in the church at Jerusalem will look at the issue and that counsel will be given. Wisdom will be sought and counsel will be given concerning what should be understood in this matter. And they make their journey and they report as they are going on their way, as they stop and rest and stay with people, as they preach, as they continue to do what is happening. They, they, they tell the good news. And when they get to Jerusalem, they're not only welcomed and recognized, but they report everything that God has done through them. Now, Paul is arguably the greatest of the New Testament authors and certainly responsible for the proliferation of the Christian church. Had Peter's church and James' church alone in Jerusalem been the the only existing church, Christianity wouldn't be alive today as a world religion. It was the spread of Christianity through the work of John Mark and Silas and Paul and others, Timothy and so forth, missionaries out in these journeys and and the far reaches of Asia Minor that made the church grow and made the church survive through very difficult times in Jerusalem. But nevertheless, there's accountability. I don't know if you see it in the passage, but Paul, despite his greatness, humbles himself and gives an account to the apostles, the twelve, and to the elders of what God has been doing. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, predictably, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, we know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. 
just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we or our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. This is Peter speaking. Peter gets up and says, why on earth would we impose a burden we haven't ourselves been able to bear? And you ask, how's that so? Every Jew was circumcised. And on the eighth day, it's not like they remembered. And as for the keeping of kosher, the Jews do that to this day. But I think we forget the distinctions that Paul will later make in Romans. You are either saved by the law, and what that means is that you keep all of it, which already hasn't happened. The scriptures tell us plainly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death. You have an option, but you don't have an option. So while David describes the law as a joy, Paul describes it as that which brings about our death because the law convicts us of sin and sin brings us to a point of judgment and judgment to death. Make sense? So immediately the Pharisees are putting on a yoke. Peter understands it. Even in this very early stage in the church, Peter understands circumcision and law to be a yoke which the people have never been able to bear. And why would he say that? Were the Israelites faithful to God? Periodically. Are you faithful to God? I think that's a fair answer. We have our moments, don't we? I guarantee there are times when God is smiling about every one of us proud did you see my servant and your name gets inserted there we have our moments we still have the residual image of god in us we have christ we have the spirit we are not without help or hope but we too fail we too step aside we too lay it down we too make choices that are regrettable And Israel failed time and time again. And this is the yoke that they could not bear. This is the burden that they couldn't keep up. The burden of contractual righteousness. We will obey the law of God. He will be our God and we will be his people. And now the new covenant says something more powerful. I'm going to put my law on their hearts and minds. I'm going to write it in the fleshy tables of their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. It's unconditional. And God does the work. And if you can't say amen to that, you're not an amening crowd at all. That wasn't bad for a non-amening crowd. I tell you, you're in danger now. I just love that. Why would we put this yokes that neither... We nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Amen. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. 
when they had finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name say to the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages an Old Testament reference that let them know the possibilities. Verse 19, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. That's actually the same command, because if an animal is strangled, the blood remains in the meat. And the kosher method of of slaughtering was to slit the throat and hang the animal up that the blood might drain out completely. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Even Islam reveres Moses and his writings. Well, if we took the time to read this whole thing, you would find that they did just that. They wrote a letter asking the people to abstain from these three basic things and that they should be accepted into fellowship. And then, as Paul and uh, Paul was ready to, ready to head out, he and Barnabas had such a severe disagreement over a young man named John Mark who had flaked out on them once, but whom Barnabas wanted to give a second chance to and Paul did not that eventually Barnabas and Mark went off to Cyprus and Paul took Silas and went on his way. And the work of God grew in spite of these disagreements. The gospel was spread in spite of these differences. The process in this particular case took apostles and said, we're going to have you decide the matter. Elders and said, we're going to have you decide the matter. Later on, the church would work through bishops, popes, and those high up in the church. And there's some question among us today particularly about the validity of that. Because we read, as I read in my prayer, in Exodus 19, verse 6. Why don't you turn quickly to that passage, Exodus 19, 6. I'm going to read the last part of 5. Although the whole earth is mine... You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, God says. Although the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kings and priests, powerful. We as Protestants, as Adventists particularly, accept the priesthood of all believers. We wouldn't advocate that 12 people in Washington, D.C. decide everything. We would advocate that every believer search the scriptures and satisfy himself or herself of what the truth is. We would advocate that every person take seriously relationship with God and, and know what it is that they believe. And so we operate a little differently I'm running out of time. This is a long sermon, sorry. I'm running out of time, but here it is. 
This Jerusalem council was probably the first of the church councils, and it decided a problem, and the problems would continue from there. From this council on until at least 325 AD, and some would argue 900 AD, the nature of Christ would be argued about. The biggest argument in the entire Christian history is on who Jesus was. Some said Jesus had not come in the flesh, but was a spirit. That was declared a heresy. In fact, that is present already in the scriptures because by the time you get to the writings of John, he says, unless you declare that God has come in the flesh, that Christ has come in the flesh, there's no truth in you. So that heresy was happening already even in the lifetime of the apostles. Then there were those who said that, it was Arius, I believe, who said that Christ was begotten of the Father, secondary, but before the beginning of time or the creation of the world. And Athanasius and Alexander said, no way. Arius had said they're different in substance. Athanasius and Alexander had said, no, they're distinct, but of the same substance, because if we don't understand that properly, we move into polytheism. And the Christian faith, as you well know, claims a monotheistic point of view. Well, Christology is very difficult. That is the study of who Jesus was. From a theological point of view, Christology is a very deep subject. There are acres of books on Christology, and I'm not going to bore you with all of that. But from a Christian history point of view, these were some of the things happening. So very early on, you have the development of what was called creeds. Now, a creed is a statement that denotes an orthodox position. So, for example, the Apostles' Creed was really being worked on between the 2nd and 9th centuries. That is to say, if John the Revelator died as late as we think he did in the 80-90 range, in his 90s, then within years of his death they were already working on formulating a creed because of all the questions that had arisen in that short period of time and the creed um, the apostles creed goes something like this I'm going to read the traditional English version I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead." I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That's one of the earliest of creeds. The Nicene Creed, which I don't have time to go into the history of, but basically was Constantine's efforts to unify the empire post-312 A.D., after his victory. I mean, his saying was, his, his saying was, one God, one Lord, one faith, one church, one empire, and one emperor. That was Constantine. He wanted to make it simple. But he found that that was more difficult than he could have imagined. 
So with everybody disagreeing, he called the church together and said, let's get it right. And they formed the Nicene Creed. And here's what that one sounds like. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of light, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe one holy, and, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. One of my teachers, somebody you all know, Fritz Guy, when Annika was baptized, he and I had a, a wonderful conversation about creeds. And he described the genius of the Adventist church as the absence of a creed. We have fundamental statements of belief. And what this means is that through the processes outlined actually in Acts 15, the doctrine can be added to, it can be subtracted from, or it can be modified according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's powerful. What we say in essence is that we're not going to try to find words that we are going to lock in stone to symbolize what it is we think or believe, but we're going to leave words with some fluidity because we continue to grow in our perceptions and in our journeys and in our experience of who God is. I had a very conservative conference president at my ordination who tried to pin me down. Greg, will you basically sign and pledge allegiance to the 27, it was 27 at the time, fundamental beliefs of the church? Boy, it's a good thing he didn't know there were going to be 28. I'd have been off the hook, wouldn't I? I only signed up for 27. You're going to have to leave that 28th to someone else. I said, to the extent that the 27 fundamental beliefs represent a conservative consensus statement of faith and practice for the Adventist church, I will faithfully support them. But to the extent that this is not a monolith, that is to say something carved in stone, I expect that my own views and the views of my church will grow as the Holy Spirit leads. Friends, only a church can corporately decide what represents an orthodox position or a widely held acceptable formulation of a view of God. And only you can study that and decide whether you agree or disagree. And how you agree and how you disagree matters. Because when you agree, 
you have given yourself the gift of putting yourself in harmony with those that surround you. And when you disagree, I hope that you disagree honestly. And I hope you disagree passionately. I'll tell you a very quick story. In 1995, the General Conference convened and looked at the issue after 15 years of looking at it. They looked at the issue of the ordination of women and decided once for all, no. No universal ordination for women. I wrote a seven-page resignation letter from my position as pastor. Oh, don't amen me. I didn't have the courage to turn it in. That's why I'm here today. Who knows? I'd be an auto mechanic or something else today if I'd turned that thing in. Do you think they'd have let me back in after that? Seven pages. I was so impassionately convinced that this was morally and scripturally and spiritually the wrong thing, that they had gone the wrong direction, that they hadn't heard. But I'm glad I stayed in. Because while I still have strong convictions, I understand that there is more than me to consider in this equation. That the benefits of being connected to body life are much greater than my differences on something about whether women should be ordained to the priesthood or the pastorate within Adventism or not. That I have the chance to do infinitely more good and to use my gifts in concert with the gifts of others by staying and doing what God has called me to do, which does not happen alone. It happens in body. And I'm here 13 years later. Oh, thank you, Bunny. I was hoping somebody would say amen to that. (laughs) Amen. All right. We have an orthodoxy. And in truth, most of us, because of the minor variations with which we see things, and the minor variations with which things have been taught regionally, and the minor differences that exist between what we call liberal and conservative, let's be honest, you cannot be a Christian Seventh-day Adventist in the big world of thought and really, truly be liberal. That's an oxymoron. You have just declared that a human... A God came in human form, lived and died, that that had, a, that had purpose and meaning for an entire planet and that he's gone back to heaven, which nobody's seen. I mean, logically, that's not a liberal position. Am I making sense? So the spectrum is really relatively small here. What we're talking about is this heterodoxy. And I commend you as a church, O saints of Santa Clarita, arise. I commend you. I applaud you. I cheer you on. I thank you. I tell you, good job. Because here in Santa Clarita, orthodoxy is secondary to relationship. Here in Santa Clarita, We like to understand and we share an orthodoxy that has minute variations, which means I think we live with a sort of pluralism, a sort of minor pluralism here that I would call a heterodoxy. And our heresies are few and far between.
good job. And I would encourage you to think about those relational pieces and what church can accomplish that nothing else can because guess what? One of the things I needed to practice in 1995 was humility. And it is humbling to believe with every fiber of your being that you are right. But to go on working for and serving people you believe are wrong. Ah, did I just say too much? And when we serve one another in humility and in community, we get it right. Because God does work not just with you, but with the people he calls his own.